Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, David Summers is here hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Stud, Ron Fuller. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the storyteller, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What is up, Ron? I know you're saddled up and we are ready to ride. Oh, yeah, man. Been saddled up for a while, man. I'm really ready to go on this one. This is going to be a good one, I think. Fans are going to love this one. We're going to cover some, uh, in the early part of this one, a really, really horrible incident, man. Something I'd been afraid might happen. And it comes to pass, and a uh, uh, sad little deal, but, uh, you know, that's uh, part of what wrestling was all about, and especially when you get the breaking blocks on your head. <laughs> I mean, when you start going that far out, you know, sometimes things don't go just like you want them to go. So, All right, listen, you strung us along about this one last week, so we get the full story, the rest of the story this week, right? Yeah, yep, yeah. I think we're going to try to make it work this week to where we don't have to go into a part four. Good deal. So, All right. Man, so where are we riding first? What are, what are we going to do today? Well, we're going to obviously, like I said, we're going to start off and finish that today's training that we started three weeks ago. And uh, we had the booking hat on for our first episode. And then we end up putting the on, changing on the wrestlers hats for the last two. Uh, Joe Duke, the Mongolian stalker, uh, who is Archie Goley, was his real name. Uh, basically, they come to me with this idea that's dangerous and uh, something that had never been done before. Uh, but they convinced me that they weren't going to get hurt doing it. So the stomper didn't get hurt when he did it. And that's what we talked about last week. And uh, they broke a block on the stomper's head. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr. did a concrete block. And uh, this week, uh, we're going to talk about Joe LaDuke's turn. And uh, you're going to answer that question about uh, Joe LaDuke's health, uh, you know, after this is over. And uh, we're also going to answer the second question that we talked about last week. We ended up the last, second question last week on the learning tree, and it fit right into what we're going to start out with today. So we're going to answer the question that uh, the second question about if a wrestler doesn't work another territory after he's in an injury angle and he gets legitimately hurt, does the promoter pay his medical expenses? So that's going to fit into this program as well. So we're also going to open the studcast today by uh, answering those two questions that we left over from last week. 
Then we're going to focus on September of 1976. We're moving into September of 1976. We're leaving Shohei Park for two weeks because of the fair. We're going into the Knoxville Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium. It's almost downtown in Knoxville. It's an old stadium, but it has a covered grandstand. And uh, we're going to need that pretty soon here. We're going to be there for two weeks. In the second week, we're going to need that covered grandstand for the people. So and as we're getting closer each episode right now to that NWA world title match between Terry Funk and myself. And we're going to talk about the two TVs that are in this program because we were in West Virginia last week on a Friday night rather than in Knoxville. So we've got two Knoxville TVs to talk about that are promoting the same card of Friday night, September 3rd, 1976. So then we're going to talk about our learning tree, going to the learning tree at the end. And uh, the question there today is, did you decide to pay off Mr. Kazana for Southeastern Wrestling earlier than the arrangement called for after the territory began to grow and you started making some big money, right? Or if so, and if not, uh, what was the reason uh, that you didn't sell the territory? Good questions. You know, that's uh, people out there that are listening and uh, understand that the summer of 76 was something pretty spectacular for Southeastern Wrestling. And it started to make money. Companies started to make some pretty decent money at that point. Good deal. All right. So, Ron, typically I would say, where are we going first? But I'm certainly hoping that you're going to be taking us to where we left off with the Mongolian Stomper sitting on his backside in the ring and gorgeous George is about to drop a sledgehammer on a concrete block that's placed on top of his head. Yeah, and and I, I'm sure if people are just tuning in and they've never listened to this show before, they're going to go, what did he say? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, is that for real? Yeah, yeah. We're, 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 we're going to, go to pick up where we left off last week with Mongolian Stomper putting a concrete block on his head and gorgeous George Jr. breaking it with a sledgehammer. All right, so, but wait, Ron, before you get started, we are going to this time actually finish the story today's tra- on today's training, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah this time, Dave, yeah. <laughs> Thank so, you. I promise you, Dave, this time we're going to finish the story, even if we had to be here for two hours. We're and going to folks, finish it. And after you're done, if they want to visualize this, there, this is, and you mentioned this last week, and I looked it up before we did the show today, it is on YouTube, and it's pretty dramatic. It is. It's very shocking to see a man hit over the head with a sledgehammer uh, with a concrete block. But it is on YouTube, and after this show, they'll be able to see that as well. So that's that's really, it really kind of brings it home. Yeah, we're going to tell them how to find that sucker today, you know, because I said we were going to do that last week. So we're going to tell them how to get that YouTube shot, and it is pretty amazing. So I know, like, this is the third week in a row we've been on the same subject, kind of, you know. And this started off, we are talking about Booker's. And where they get their ideas from everything. And then I brought along, well, I got an idea from two wrestlers, Joe LaDuke and Monty Stomper. And all of a sudden, we changed from the Booker hat to two wrestlers' hats. And we started talking about this angle, which was undoubtedly never, ever done anywhere else. And probably if anybody ever saw it, that's the reason it was never done. It's like, wow, these guys are really out there, man. So I remember things in the studio that day, the day that uh, that Joe LaDuke's going to break the block. It's his turn to break the block on this show that day. And I remember how tense it was in the studio 
when the, everybody started arriving. And it wasn't just me and it wasn't just the wrestlers. Uh, it was the studio people as well. I mean, uh, the production crew, you know. So I remember, you know, uh, that, uh, like I said, third week in a row, we're going to finish the blockbusting angle today. And um, I wanted fans to be able to see this in slow motion. It actually was in slow motion. They're going to see it in slow motion on YouTube. But uh, I wanted to make sure my fans got to see it in slow motion. So uh, I wanted to take very good care of my Southeastern wrestling fans. They were getting instant replays, which was way ahead of anybody else in wrestling. But I wanted them to see this blockbusting on Joel Duke's head in slow motion for sure. So the production staff at the television station, they, they tell me how you do it. Here's what you got to do, Ron. It's got to be shot on film. And they ain't going to be able to watch it back instantly. You'll have to get the film produced, and then you will be able to show it back next Saturday. So uh, it was kind of a production, but we spent some time early in the morning that day when we first came in setting up this camera on the apron of the ring that was going to shoot with film that was capable of uh, stopping it and slowing it down to the slow motion. And uh, it took us a while to do it. And while we were doing that little process, I really got to looking at the crew, and everybody there was just really scared for Joe LaDuke that day because uh, they realized, having watched it the week before, how dangerous this was. Hmm. So about two hours before the show actually started, the wrestlers began to arrive. And, boy, there was tension in the air with them. Uh, everyone, I think, was worried about what might happen today. Joe LaDuke, he arrived in good spirits. He was a tough old guy, man. and. Uh, he was handling it pretty good. So, you know, uh, uh, and I, I didn't try to spend much time talking to him because I felt like I might make him nervous because I was extremely nervous. Uh, the program format for this show was exactly the same as the week before. The blockbusting was going to be done on the personality profile segment, which is right in the middle of the show. So when it came close time to start, I went upstairs in the control room and I sat by Bill Kincaid, who was the show's director. And because we were shooting the show on tape instead of live, it allowed us to stop the tape before to get the camera set up on the apron of the ring and to get set up properly so that we could get this slow motion shot that we just really wanted us to have for the next week. So Les is going to again be doing it from the set. He's not going to be going into the ring and being a part of the actual personality profile. Phil Rainey, who's the ring announcer and the co-host of the show, he's going to be in the ring because we needed a microphone. So in case we needed to talk to Gorgeous George Jr., Stomper, LaDuke, or whatever. So Gorgeous George Jr. and the Stomper, they go to the ring first. And uh, right away, I was shocked. I mean, uh, this is where everything that we had agreed upon, me and Joe and Stomper, uh, started to change uh, without me knowing about it. There would never been a mention of Stomper going to the ring with Gorgeous George Jr. It was Gorgeous George going to go in the ring, take the sledgehammer, and he's going to break the block. All of a sudden, now it's Stomper and Gorgeous George going to the ring. And they brought with them, obviously, the sledgehammer. So I get on the phone, and on the set back in those days, we had a phone, and you could actually call from the control room and talk to Les. And I, so I get on the phone while I see them going to the ring, and, uh, and I asked Les, I, I said, uh, hey, what's going on here, man? <laughs> you know, why is Stomper going in the ring? You know, and Les didn't know the answer to it either. You know, he, and he, he knew something was going wrong, too. 
It was obvious that people in the studio were just as nervous about this one as they were about the block breaking from the week before. Especially, I noticed that because when Archie came out, when the Stomper came out, and Gorgeous George Jr. came out, the fans would have normally booed like crazy. There was nothing, no response. Uh, it told me these people are sitting on the edge of their seat already. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then Joel Duke comes to the ring, and he's carrying a concrete block that uh, was going to be broken on his head. But here's the second problem. Uh, this concrete block is not the same size as the regular concrete block that was busted on Stomper's head. This is one of those cornerstone concrete blocks that are twice as size and twice the weight, probably, you know. Uh, they're the type of stone that's used to set foundations with. I mean, it was like, oh, gosh, what is what is going on here, right? So... I started screaming, you know, and, you know, but nobody can hear me from upstairs. I'm in a soundproof control room, you know, and I called down again to Les. And again, I asked him, you know, if he knew about, about this, did you know about this big block? And he began to go, no, Ron, I don't know what's happening, man. So I'm at a point here where I'm thinking about, I'm going to pull the plug on this uh, because this, this is not looking good. You know, I don't know why Stomper's in the ring. I certainly know this block is not the same as the block last week. So Phil Rainey's in the ring, and he welcomes, uh, obviously, Stomper and and Gorgeous George when they come in the ring. And then when Joe comes in the ring, he welcomes Joe. And he right away, just like we pick up on me and Les, this huge block. And he he knows that that's that's not what you're supposed to be doing. (laughs) He asked Joe, he says, uh, well, what are you doing? He's very concerned about it, and he goes, uh, uh, what's the deal with this big block, Joe? It's it's much bigger than the one Stomper used last week. So I wanted to hear that question myself. <laughs> I wanted to hear the answer to that, too. Hey, yeah, what is the deal? That's a good question, Phil. And uh, so Joe says he wants to prove that he's an even tougher man than the Stomper, and he's going to break a bigger block on his head than the Stomper did. Oh, wow. It all sounded good. But boy, it wasn't looking good to me. So, yeah. So, the, so they had basically they set me up. Uh, they knew that I'd have never agreed to do this if they had told me what they were going to do. And they knew by the time it got to this point that I wasn't going to be able to stop it. And I couldn't stop it, you know, because if I'd have stopped at this point, it would make us all look foolish. It would have killed my relationship with both those two guys who were stars for me. Because they were committed to this. This was their idea. They were going to see this angle through, you know, if they got hurt or not. At this point, it's a lot more than just an angle now. It's really a test of manhood. That, that's what it is between the two of them, you know. Archie done it. Now Joe LaDuke's going to do it. So I'm powerless at, at this point to stop the deal. And Joe reaches down and he grabs this big, huge concrete box. It's so big, he's sitting on his butt. He places him. Phil places him in the middle of the ring right in front of the camera that's sitting on the apron so they want to be able to get a great shot. And Joe reaches down and picks up this big old concrete block. Probably weighs more than 50 pounds. And because he's sitting down, he struggles to get it up and put it on the top of his head. And when he placed it on his head, you could see the weight of it was so heavy that it forced his neck down into his body. Oh, wow. And, uh, I was sitting up there in the control room, and when I saw that, I, I instantly I could tell this is not going to be good because there was no place for his neck to compress downward into his body. 
and then be able to, you know, recoil back into its normal position. He has just 50 no- pounds, just 50 extra pounds on a person's head is enough to hurt you. So yeah. that, that's where you are at this point, and the sledgehammer's not even involved yet. The sledgehammer's not been in, even even involved at this point. I, I see him put it on his head, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, no, 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 no. But I can't stop it at this point right. because I, I know they would be furious with me. So now if, if this whole thing wasn't bad enough, uh, what was coming up topped it all. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr. had been holding the sledgehammer the entire time that he and Stomper were inside the ring. Now, I know Joe and Stomper, they've been privately refining this angle and realizing that if either of them got hurt, they needed a good reason to continue this angle. So uh, they stand behind him. Gorgeous George stands with Stomper behind Joe LaDuke, uh, who's sitting on his butt. He's got this 50-pound concrete huge block on his head, and it comes time to break the block. And uh, George starts to lift the sledgehammer. And suddenly, Archie pushes him out of the way, grabs the sledgehammer, and hits the block. So it isn't gorgeous George that breaks the block like he did on Stomper's head. It's actually the heel breaking the block on the babyface's head. And I'm sure that they knew that if Joe got hurt, that the heat would go to the Stomper for this happening instead of gorgeous George Jr. And it turns out that uh, this small change was maybe the only thing that saved this entire angle because it did make a huge difference. The fact that Stomper grabbed the sledgehammer and hit the block rather than Gorgeous George hitting the block. All right. So, and, and, but, but up to this point, everything that ha- is happening so far, including the Stomper grabbing the sledgehammer, was planned by both of these men. Yes. That was not my idea. Right. You know, and, and, <laughs> And I think they had talked about it and said, look, Joe, if you get hurt now, you know, at least we can come back after you get well with a hell of an angle and a hell of a program again, because it'll be you, Stomper, that did it right? rather than gorgeous George. I mean, it would do no good for uh, Joe LaDuke, the monster Joe LaDuke, to come back against a little gorgeous George Jr., so it's the only thing that worked out properly here in a way. Mm. So everyone in the studio at this point, every wrestler watching on the monitors in the dressing rooms back there, every cameraman, Les, Phil Rainey, myself, every employee of the production crew, all of us screamed at the same time when he hit it. It was like, wow, God, it was horrible looking. And again, it looked like that sledgehammer hit Joe LaDuke in the top of the head. The block shattered into giant pieces, big pieces, probably six or seven huge pieces. And Joe's body kind of jolted downward because it was compressed by the blow. And he already had that 50 pounds on his head. And then he, he almost went airborne as his body recoiled from it. His butt almost came off the mat. It looked as though the sledgehammer, like I said, it hit him in the top of the head. Then Joe's body kind of twisted sideways at like an angle from where he was sitting when he got hit, and he fell backwards onto the mat. So I just knew he was hurt. I mean, you know, God, how did anybody going to deal with that, you know? But then he suddenly sat up upright, and his eyes were wide open, just like he was working. When he worked, he always had those big, huge eyes, and uh, his eyes were wide open. And for a second there, I thought, oh, gosh, man, he's going to be okay. 
And uh, he sat upright for about five seconds, and then he fell backwards and flat again, and he didn't move after that. So Les called upstairs right away to the director, Bill Kincaid, and he, he said, could stop the tape, stop the tape. And by the time, and I ran, I just went from the control room, I ran as fast as I could down the stairs into the main studio. So did Robert, Jimmy, Bob Armstrong, several other baby faces. We all got to the ring about the same time, and Joe was unconscious. We left him there. We didn't want to mess with him. I mean, you didn't know whether he'd broken his neck or how bad his injuries were. We had him call an ambulance. Uh, Obviously, this tape has stopped during all this. And the crowd is just, they're just silent. I mean, people are just like, wow, we've seen something horrible here. And they had, you know, so the ambulance comes and they take Joe. They admit him into the hospital and he's going to be there for about a week. To me, it was one of the worst moments in in my career. You know, I was like, wow, I should have seen it coming. And, and, uh, you know, but uh, I couldn't have stopped it the way they did it. All right. All of this did play back on TV. But at what point did it stop? And could was less uh, did less appear on TV saying stop the tape, stop? Where, how did it stop? It stopped just kind of like uh, spontaneously. Once Les got on the phone and he called to the the uh, director, he stopped tape, and we didn't show Joe being put onto the stretcher and taken to the ambulance. Right, right. Uh, we tried to, you know, because I, 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 I thought, man, this is a bad enough thing. I can't, you know, I would have felt like I was really now taking advantage of, of the entire situation. <laughs> so we didn't start tape again until Joe was gone in the ambulance out of there. And we went back and showed it an instant replay. And Joe was legitimately unconscious at this point. Oh, yeah. Joe left the building. He was he was out. It was uh, this is, uh, obviously there's no telling what was going through your mind, which had oh. to be terrible thoughts. So did you go to the hospital when the show was over? What do I mean? What, how did that, what would you do? Yeah. As soon as the show was over, I rushed down there to the hospital. The hospital wasn't too far from the television station. Uh, we're right downtown Knoxville basically. And, uh, but I couldn't see him because he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't conscious. I mean, he was, he was barely stable, I guess, and uh, I had to wait two days. I went two more times and still couldn't see him. I waited. It was two days before I ever got into his room to actually see him. Did you talk to the stomper or gorgeous George at that point to say this was a part of the angle you didn't tell me about? I mean, did you did you have words with them at that point? I I didn't. You know, I don't, it wouldn't have done any good. I mean, the injury is yeah. the injury, so and there's nothing you could have done about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's done is done at this point. Yeah. You can't you can't wow. take that, that blow back, you know, oh and, my God. and to go yeah. and make them feel bad about it. I didn't feel like that'd be the correct thing to do. So I just, we never talked about it, about what had happened. Uh, and they dealt with it maybe worse than me. Think mm. about that. Think about yeah. how, how the Stomper felt. And I did. I considered that. You know, I felt horrible, but I'm I'm thinking, how how does he feel? Right. You know? So it was a touchy deal. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, it's so, a, it's a strange thing. Well, so there 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 was definitely a problem because he was unconscious, and so there had to be some sort of real injury. Were there long term effects from this? Yeah, he had a neck injury, and it was a uh, it was pretty severe. But Joe was such a tough guy, 
that he came back and started working within about a month. You know, he never complained. You never heard him say anything about his neck. But I could tell that it it bothered him. You know, I would see him rubbing his neck a lot that he never used to do before this happened to him. That was a bad situation. Wow. So you said something in the opening that was that what happened to Joe was going to answer the second question from last week's learning tree. That question was something about if a wrestler was legitimately hurt in an injury angle, did the promoter pay for his injuries? And the other thing, uh, obviously it was still a serious injury, but as you said, he's a very tough guy. He was only in the hospital for a week. That's pretty amazing in and of itself. Yeah. It's a testament to him and how tough he was. And, uh, and uh, you're right about to pick up on, on that. You know, this does answer that question because Joe legitimately got hurt in, in an angle. So, yes, I did pay Joe's bills. I paid his hospital bills. I paid uh, his personal expenses until he was able to come back to the ring. And not all, all promoters around the country would do that, I don't think. But I felt responsible. <laughs> I mean, uh, Although they did things that they didn't tell me they were going to do, and they turned it into a more dangerous thing, and I didn't know about it, I still felt responsible for it. But at the same time, Dave, I also benefited greatly from this because it was the most real angle maybe that was ever done on a professional wrestling television show. I mean, it it was bona fide dangerous. And the fans that witnessed that still talk about it. When, when I'm in Knoxville, I run into people and they go, boy, I remember the, the, the jolted dude breaking the block on his head. And then 43 years later, they still talk about it. It was just something unbelievable and a once-in-a-lifetime deal. Even though you had a friend and a coworker or so, a guy that worked for you who was seriously injured, you had to be wondering, what, I wonder what kind of number we got off this. How many people were watching this? Oh, well, you can imagine. I mean, if, if you watched the week before and you saw that block bust on Stomper's head and uh, how horrible it looked and how dangerous it looked, uh, you darn sure are well going to go back in the next week and watch somebody else do it. Uh, not only is that going to happen, but you're going to tell everybody you know about it. You're going to go, wow, yeah. you got to watch yeah, the wrestling yeah. next week. The guy's going to break a concrete block on his head. Do you, you know? reco- do you recall if you ever got a figure from the show? Did anybody ever come to you and say three quarters of the entire audience was watching this? Because I, I, I can imagine it was a, just an incredible figure. Oh, it would have been amazing. You know, and uh, back in those days, you couldn't go, you know, you're a small town. Uh, it, you know, National Network could give you what the actual ratings were and how many people was watching. But this is a local show and nobody's there pulling those kind of ratings for you. So yeah. I never really saw it. But we were already at this point doing a 70, close to an 80 share, which meant that <laughs> four out of five people watching whatever oh yeah. were watching us. Yeah. So we couldn't have gained a whole lot more. But uh, what happened is that four out of five turned into a lot more extra people because that four out of five went and told everybody about what's going to happen next week. You need to watch, you know. Yeah, and the, the image that it brought to both of those two uh, had to be just really extra after that. They really had to be revered after they, after they went through that. All right. So before we get off this subject, Ron, you said, I think you said last week that you were going to give fans a YouTube link 
that would allow them to see both of these blockbustings as we talked about earlier. As I said, I saw one of them before we did the show today, but the one with Joe LaDuke, I missed. So, so, but you've got, you can tell us how to see both of them. Yeah. You know, and, and this is really something amazing. It's the great thing about technology today. We don't have any Southeastern wrestling programs from Knoxville. Very few. Now there may be a few here and there. I saw maybe an hour or one not too long ago, but, uh, very few things on YouTube that come out of Southeastern uh, Knoxville in the 70s. But uh, this one is on. There's a piece on YouTube that you can go to and find it. And fans, uh, you can go to YouTube. And uh, what you do is search. And you search for Mongolian Stomper Special 1980. Now, that special is going to open up with three guys and Charlie Platt out of Pensacola, out of Southeastern in Pensacola. So when you see the opening of this, it's going to be Charlie Platt, Dennis Condry, Randy Rose, and Mr. Saito. Some pretty good talent right there sitting with Charlie Platt. And then they're going to cut out of that segment, and they're going to go to this southeastern Knoxville segment that was done many years earlier. And uh, it's going to be hosted by Gorgeous George Jr. He's doing it. He begins it from his own home. And he has a big picture of the Mongolian Stomper on the wall behind him. And uh, this is probably a five, six minute video. And part of it is just wrestling matches. But toward the end of this, they're going to actually show both the block breakings. They're going to show uh, Jola Duke uh, with the big block. And they're also going to show the Mongolian Stompers first before Jola Dukes. You know, I, I recommend you, you go and look at this. I don't think anybody will look at this and go, oh, that was phony. That was fake. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's a. It's a pretty scary deal. And, uh, you know, and as always, I like to say, uh, you know, the, this picture is worth a thousand words. I can tell you that. You can't describe what this looks like. No doubt about it. And really, that's just an amazing story that something like that happened and, and it happened on TV. And you, you were there behind the scenes to see it all happen. And it even shocked you to see it. So that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. All right, Stud, where to next? Well, we're going to focus on that next live event in Knoxville, that first event, September 3rd, 1976. Like I said, we're not in Chihuahua Park. We're not in the Coliseum, but we're in Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium downtown in Knoxville. We're also going to talk about the two TVs because there's no wrestling between the August 20th show and this September 3rd show. So there's going to be two televisions that advertise this show for September 3rd. So let's start with that card for Friday night, September 3rd, in uh, Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium. And there were two new, new heels making their debut in Knoxville that night. The first of those young heels in the opening match is a guy named Bill Ash, who's going to become a star in southeastern Pensacola. He's, he's really young at this point for southeastern in Knoxville, but I see his potential. He will become the United States junior heavyweight champion, and he may be one of the best of all time. And they're in a 20-minute time limit match. Now, the second match is going to be a very good match. Uh, I knew when I booked it because I had another young heel that's making his first appearance in Knoxville ever. He was trained by my grandfather, Roy's brother, Herb Welch. And he's making, as I said, his first appearance in Knoxville. His name is David Schultz. And he's not yet the doctor or the guy who's going to become famous for the slap heard around the world. Mm -hmm. But he is there to begin his journey uh, in wrestling in Southeastern. 
and he's going to be facing uh, on that card the up-and-coming guy, another up-and-coming big name in the future, Tommy Wildfire Ridge. Third match going to be Jimmy Golden versus Don Carson. These are two stars that had not met in the ring in Southeastern in quite a while. The fourth match featured the return of a wrestler who was on his way to Southeastern stardom before he got burned by the great Mephisto. We're talking about Bob Armstrong. Bob is coming back. He's going to team with the Southeastern champion, the gladiator, Dick Steinborn, to take on a tremendous hot heel. And I hate that pun again, but we're talking about the great Mephisto and Louis Tillette. The last match of the night was Tor Tanaka, managed by Homer O'Dell versus me. Terry Funk had put a $5,000 bounty on my head. And the way the $5,000 bounty was going to be done, he explained it. It was, it was going to be paid by any wrestler or fan. <laughs> Even included fans. Any wrestler or fan that could uh, beat me in a wrestling match or hurt me in any way, run over me with a car, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be. <laughs> Uh, any way that they could hurt me bad enough that I couldn't wrestle him on October 10th, 1976 in the Coliseum, that uh, he was going to get paid them $5,000. So there was another stipulation to this match. So if I won the match against Tanaka, I was going to get five minutes with Homer Odell alone. All right. Before we get to the TV from the Saturday before this card, we'll take a break right here. This studcast. We'll continue in a moment. Stay with us. Super Studcast number 32, part two, is now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Part one with Jerry the King Lawler is absolutely a must. The topics discussed in both parts are so unique and educational. It's like a wrestling encyclopedia. Jerry and Ron have so much fun telling stories about everything, from Andy Kaufman to Ron's relatives. The Memphis wrestling history in part two is truly amazing as well. From both kings, Elvis and Jerry, to the promoter that exploded Memphis wrestling and its most unusual civil rights advocate at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. More than three hours for only $2.99. It is the best deal in wrestling. Hey, I got to tell you that Super Studcast number 32 with Jerry Lawler on part one and Memphis, all about Memphis on part two. It was a ton of fun to be a part of that, especially on part two. Ron just had a blast for a couple of hours with Jerry Lawler. It's one you do not want to miss. And don't forget tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. That is the home of the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. You got photos. You've got a ton of stuff, including T-shirts. And every studcast ever released is available right there. Okay, Ron, we are back. We are ready to go. And where are we headed now? Well, we're going we're gonna to go back, and we're going to, as you suggested, we're going to cover the TVs. There's two of them that are right before this event on September 3rd in the baseball stadium. And, uh, you know, like I said, there's been no live matches since August the 20th of 1976 in the Chihuahua Park. And that match, the one on the August the 20th, I had wrestled uh, Don Carson in a Texas death match. My father was my manager, and Tor Tanaka managed Don Carson. So that's what we have video of that's going to go basically in the next two programs. So just a quick reminder to fans about what happened in that match the night I'm talking about, August the 20th, because it's going to be highlighted on TV the next day. 
I obviously wore Carson's glove in the match. I had taken it off of him in a pole match, had kept it, and was going to wear it and use it against his butt and uh, let him taste the peanut butter himself. I won the match but was so exhausted when it was over that I could hardly stand up. The ref raised my hand, and I collapsed. After he raised my hand, I just I fell, basically almost on top of Carson, who's still laying on the mat, uh, and we're both down face first. My father's outside the ring, and he comes inside the ring, and he picks me up, and he raises my hand. He's celebrating with me. I'm not celebrating. I'm just trying to catch my breath. And Tanaka attacks him from behind. He piled-drived him, and he threw him over the top rope. Then he threw the referee over the top rope, and then the big boy comes for me. And I was still laying on the mat where I collapsed next to Carson. So after he hits me with four or five karate chops, I'm on the mat, Tanaka takes off Carson's glove, and he he gets a hold of Carson, drags him out to the apron, and he takes Carson and throws him over his shoulder, and, he, and when he takes the glove, and he heads to the dressing room. So there were two TVs to promote this one card. So the one was just talked about, the one we're talking about, the, the card of Friday, September 3rd, and that's two weeks after this, August the 20th night. So the first TV... It's going to promote September 3rd. It's on Saturday, August 21st, the day after this Texas death match I just described. Uh, that's the first TV that opens, and it opens with that popular still shot from the end of the match the night before with Carson and I. So at this point, we're pretty much regularly opening shows with this great close-up shot, less as he announces the card each week. There's a close-up shot of him at the table. And then after he finishes, they back away with that shot, and it reveals that big, spectacular chroma key still shot, and that it covers the whole background behind Les. So he was joined on this show by Don Carson and Tor Tanaka, and there's no sign of Homer O'Dell. That was kind of unusual. I'm sure fans thought, where's Homer O'Dell? Fans in the studio, and I'm sure also at home, they were getting accustomed to this opening each week. So everyone in the production crew began to refer these giant still shots. And they started calling the shot of the day. What's going to be the shot of the day, Ron, used to tell me or ask me when I went into TV every week. So the shot of the day for this week was a still shot, a tour Tanaka. After Carson and my Texas death match the night before, <laughs> Tanaka has Don Carson thrown over his shoulder like a baby. And, uh, and he's Tanaka's. Headed for the dressing room. Carson's out cold and uh, is hanging over his shoulder. So when the shot goes to full screen, the fans in the studio get to see what the shot was all about. And they just erupt in laughter. I mean, everybody's like, oh, look at Don Carson. He looks like a baby. <laughs> the knock is just <laughs> trucking him right out to the dressing room. <laughs> so Carson sees it. Carson's on the set. Him and Tanaka. And Carson goes nuts. He goes, oh, my God. He starts screaming at Thatcher. What? Get that off of there. What are y'all doing? So uh, the director, you know, <laughs> he, sees, he sees, leaves it up there. So the louder Carson screams about it, the more the fans in the studio laugh about it, you know. So even Les kind of gets involved. And, and you know, he, he kind of smiles. And he can't stop but make a comment of his own. And he says something like, uh, What's the matter, Don? Is that the first time you ever got carried out? <laughs> oh, the studio popped on that one. <laughs> so, and Don hated it. He, t- he Boy, he turned on Lassie. 
he was saying something to him about, are you responsible for this? You know, Thatcher, are you trying to embarrass me? He was just attacking Les. Carson took over from there, as he liked to do on TV. And he told Les, you don't need to say anything. He says, I'll handle everything from here. And he starts talking to the director upstairs like he owns the show. And he says, get that shot off the screen and back that video up and play it from where I got counted out after Ron Fuller hit me with my own glove. That's the way he put it. Everything Mm -hmm. from there on was his version of the match, obviously. No matter what the video showed, you got Don Carson's version of what you were seeing. So he claimed my father held me up from falling at the end of the match or he w- I wouldn't have won the match, the Texas death match to begin with. So con- Carson continued, and Les remained silent. Pretty hard for Les sometimes to remain silent, but he did. Carson started pointing that I was laying on the mat just where he had put me, and then when it showed my father enter the ring, stand up and raise my hand, Carson said that was the only time anybody had raised my hand. He, he claimed that the ref never raised his hand. His daddy raised his hand. <laughs> So then Tanaka attacked my father from behind. He piled drive him, threw him over the top rope, then the referee. Then he came and started beating me up. And Carson claimed all that was because my father attacked Tanaka three times already during the match, but they never recorded any of that. He didn't get to see that, but he made Tanaka mad. So he claimed that that was why Tanaka went crazy at the end of the match, because the Fullers were cheating so badly. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Typical Don Carson, man. Yeah. He's turned this thing all around. At the end of the video, Carson rolled over in the actual video and he kind of threw an arm over me, you know. But about the same time, Tanaka was removing Carson's glove off my hand. So Carson turns to Les and he says, uh, See me, Thatcher? He goes, I'm taking his glove off at punk. You see me take my glove back? <laughs> well, obviously, he's down and out and he didn't take the glove back. So Les couldn't take anymore. And he started to tell the true story about what they were starting to see. And uh, Carson demanded that he stop the video. Stop the video. Stop the video. You know, we've already been through it, Les. We've already talked about what's going on. And uh, about that time, uh, he stopped it just before they were going to show Tanaka carried him like a baby (laughs) out cold to the dressing room. So uh, Carson then got serious. You know, he says, uh, you know, the only reason Tanaka and him were out here at all was because Tanaka was going to make a, a special secret presentation to me out here, Les. And Les said, well, go ahead, make the deal, do whatever it is. So Tanaka, for the first time, spoke in the, you know, in semi, I'm going to call it semi-understandable language. <laughs> Best I'd ever heard Tanaka talk, you know. And I think he said something like, uh, Mr. Cotton, a uh, good man, uh, a present for him, you know, and he reached behind his back and he pulled Carson's black glove out of the back of his trunks. Don's eyes lit up. Camera got a good shot. Don's like, oh, boy, look at that. He's got my glove. And uh, Tanaka spoke to him again. He said something like, uh, Mr. Carson, uh, you you need hand protection. Need hand. Uh, he <laughs> said, my, my gift, my gift to you. And he handed him the glove. <laughs> so. Oh, Don, you know, typical Don Carson. He hugged the old big Tanaka man, and uh, and he appeared to have real tears in his eyes. He's crying. He's like, oh, this is too much. <laughs> so he turns back to Les, and he says something to Les about, Thatcher, isn't this wonderful? 
<laughs> and he puts his glove on right there on TV, and he throws, throws his arm around Tanaka, and uh, they walk off the set. So, so in this TV, there was a great interview. It was sent from the Florida Territory. It was with Bob Armstrong, who hadn't been seen in about six weeks in Southeastern since the night of Great Mephisto burned in. Dick Steinborn joined less, and he watched the interview, saying he was sitting in for his good friend, the Gladiator. You know, who was the Southeastern champion and that the Gladiator will be tagging two weeks later with the returning Bob Armstrong to face the man that burned Bob Armstrong, the great Mephisto and Louis Toulet. Terry Funk sent another interview to explain his bounty and that, as I mentioned earlier, that any wrestler or fan could earn this money by either beating or hurting Ron Fuller so badly that I couldn't make it to the world title match on October 10th, 1976. Uh, Then he wished the massive Tanaka all the luck in the world in the upcoming match and said he was looking forward to paying Tanaka off on Saturday, September 4th, the day after he slaughtered me. (laughs) Well, wishful thinking, at least on their part. You said there were two TVs before the September 3rd, 1976 match with Tanaka, what happened on the next week's TV show? Well, let's open up this TV with the tight shot, shot of the day, basically, like the camera guys started calling it, and, and he announced the TV card in the tight shot, and, and I was at the set with him this time. And when Les finished and the shot expanded out like it did the week before, it was the same shot. <laughs> it was it was Tanaka with Carson laying like a baby over his shoulder, knocked out cold. And the audience reacted the same way as they had the week before. They started roaring with laughter again. And Les and I both just started laughing, too. I mean, we, everybody had to laugh at that shot. It was really good. So this TV went straight to the ring. We didn't talk about the match first. It went straight to the ring with Jimmy Golden. And he's, you know, we wanted to start to show off a little differently than we had the last one. And Jimmy got himself a great win, man. We had that big old drop kick off the top rope. And boy, it looked spectacular on the instant replay. Jimmy then came back to the set with me, and we had a real laugh fest as we watched this tape again with Don Carson. And uh, Jimmy was facing him the next Friday night in the baseball stadium. So I watched the entire video, and I watched it this time from my perspective rather than from Don Carson's perspective. And I was able to tie it in with my upcoming match with Tanaka, emphasizing the fact that what Tanaka had done to my father and basically what a low life Tanaka and Homer Odell were to even accept the bounty that like Funk had put out on me. And Jimmy talked about his upcoming match with Carson the next Friday. Studio audience had a great time along with us. It was a completely different vibe than the same video got the week, the week before. So on this TV, fans heard from the great Mephisto and Louis Toulette as well as they got to see that team into action, and they destroyed two young baby faces, which they were really good at, especially Mephisto. Mephisto gave them the old uh, fingers in the eyes, and uh, he did all his stuff. And, uh, you know, he was a pretty scary dude. They did an interview afterward that was real scary. In fact, to let ask Mephisto if he'd ever burned two infidels in the same match. Since they were wrestling in a tag match. And it's going to be against Armstrong and the Gladiator. I guess he wanted to see him burn Armstrong again. So the Southeastern champion, the Gladiator, defended his Southeastern title on television, which is, we like to do that every once in a while. 
put a major championship match on television. And in this match, he defended against a former star that had been really over a year earlier, and that was the assassin. So they had a great match and tore the studio up, man. I mean, the studio crowd was going crazy. The Gladiator won the match. He retained his title, and uh, he got himself over more than ever, man. All right, that sounds awesome, Ron. So then what were the results of that card on Friday, September 3rd, 1976? Well, the opening match, as I said earlier, was Bill Ash against uh, Mike Stallings, and it ended in a great 20-minute time limit draw. Those boys were really, really good. Bill Ash made a great impression for fans there, and uh, I hadn't seen him work. This is the first time I ever got to see Bill Ash work, and he made a tremendous impression, not only on me, but he made it a hell of an impression on the crowd as well. I could see that this boy had talent, and he was going places in the future. Second match was another very good one. Two young wrestlers, both on their way to being major stars. Tommy Wildfire Rich against David Schultz. Schultz impressed the fans that night just like Ash did. It was amazing. You had these two young heels uh, making their debut in Knoxville, both of them looking great. David Schultz got his first ever Southeastern victory in Knoxville. Third match was the fan favorite, Jimmy Golden against the ultimate heel. That's, I guess, what I can call him that, Don Carson. And in this match, after what had happened on the, the TV before, it became apparent that something was going on between Don Carson and Tor Tanaka. You know, didn't know what it was. But at the end of this match with Golden and Carson, Tanaka came down to the ring and he caused Golden to lose. Uh, Mike Stallings, who was Jimmy's regular tag partner, had been uh, battling with the Bronze Tigers, who had disappeared from Southeastern for whatever reason. Stallings comes down and he gets involved and they have a pretty violent clash, man, before them. Uh, and next week, they're going to be coming back in a tag match against each other. Fourth match was the return of Bob Armstrong, tagging with Southeastern champion and gladiator, uh, taking on the man who had burned Armstrong, the great Mephisto, and his steady sidekick, Louis Tillette. That match was wild. The four of them not only fought all over the ring, they fought all over the infield of the baseball stadium. I mean, they were just everywhere. Last match of the night was the $5,000 bounty match, Terry Funk's money at stake. A tour to knock a managed by Homer Odell was wrestling against me. He got the money if he could beat me or hurt me bad enough to keep me from making the world title match. And I got five minutes alone with Homer Odell if I won. So Homer screwed up again, man, for the fourth week in a row and caused the knocker to lose for the fourth week in a row. The knocker was so mad after the loss, he refused to speak to Homer. I mean, Homer was trying to, to come to me, you know, tell, explain to him and uh, apologize or whatever it was. Tanaka kept turning his back. So before the five minutes starts, I get the five minutes with Homer because I've won. Before that starts, Homer gets on the microphone and he starts begging Tanaka not to leave him alone with me. You know, just stay here. No, you don't go. You know, don't go. And Tanaka's still angry. You know, Tanaka wants no part of it. And the crowd really loved the fact that Nanaka was so angry with Homer. They, they were just really getting into it. So when it appeared Homer had convinced Tanaka to stay at ringside, Tanaka stood in the middle of the ring <laughs> with Homer in the corner. And Tanaka made a very plain gesture to Homer that everyone in the baseball stadium understood. He pointed to Homer and he raised his hand up to his lips 
He bent forward at the waist. He stuck out his big rear end and he slapped his hand on his big butt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the crowd exploded, man. <laughs> it was the perfect way to say, kiss my ass <laughs> to everybody. <You're> right. <laughs> so Tanaka went to the dressing room. And for the first time ever, some fans cheered him on his way to the dressing room. <laughs> they were like, oh, boy, they really loved it. It was good. I beat Homer in less than two minutes. It didn't turn out to be much of a match. Uh, Homer didn't want to be there. That was for sure. And, and he on, wasn't Ron. there very long. It took you less than two minutes? Okay. All right. All right. It sounds like a great night. I bet the attendance was just incredible. Well, you know, when you move out of the fair, now you bear in mind that the fair was in town and uh, we're in a baseball stadium that we don't normally go to. It wasn't like we'd been doing in Chihuahua Park where we were just cramming that amphitheater full. We were competing with the fair. We were in a not as nice a facility. Uh, it was downtown, and I didn't expect it to be that good. It was a heck of a lot better than it was a year earlier. Because every year in September, the first two weeks, we had to go into this baseball stadium. And remember on the, the night a year earlier than this, I went to the hospital after I had altercation with the assassin and rock hunter. The crowd the year before, it was over 2,000. We weren't drawing near as many people back in those days. We had really grown dramatically. But uh, this time, it was about 4,000 fans. So it was almost double what it was the year before. It was down. 2,000 fans from where it had been, but, you know, it was still good. I was still happy with it. And, uh, you know, what a difference a year made, man. Not just in the crowd, but, boy, in my life as well. It was a big difference between September of 75 and September of 76. Pretty awesome. All right, this is, I think, a good point to get that cold drink, get up under the learning tree. And who does our question come from today, and what's it all about? Well, today's question, Dave, comes from a guy named Terry Herring, and he asked, did you decide to pay off Mr. Kazana in Knoxville earlier than the agreement called for after the territory began growing and making more money? If so, or if not, what was the reasoning for your decision? So Mr. Herring sounds like a businessman <laughs> a little bit, you know, with those questions uh, so let's answer his first one. Did I decide to pay off John Kazana early because of the fast growth of Southeastern? So I'd like to take this one and take a little time with this one and kind of explain how we got here. So I'd like to break this down as to how things had gone since October 25th, 1974, almost two years earlier than where we are now, that when I took over Southeastern Wrestling, when I actually became a wrestling promoter. This was about two years earlier. So let's start with the agreement itself. After I incorporated Southeastern Wrestling, I was to pay a total of $150,000. That is, guess how much, Dave, in today's money? $788,000. Holy cow. Wow. I was going to uh, 26 years old. I was setting myself up and signing an agreement to pay $150,000 that was equal to almost $800,000 in today's money. The agreement called for me to pay $25,000 down payment when I took over and then pay $500 per week every week. So that was $26,000 a year. It equaled in today's money to $136,000 a year to pay along with that $25,000 down. 
So that was to continue until the entire $150,000 was paid. If I failed to make any payments whatsoever, Knoxville Wrestling and the surrounding area would revert back to John Kazana's ownership. All right, so, so the weight of the world was on your shoulders at age 26. What kind of pressure was that? Or did you have some confidence in the back of your mind that I'm going to do this and we're going to make this? Well, I tell you, we're, I'm going to set it up. I'll take it another step, man, since you, since you asked me that. Uh, uh, so not being a very experienced businessman in 26 years, I had a little savings in the bank. I had borrowed the 25000 for the down payment. I had a house I was renting in Knoxville. But I was paying payments on a home I still owed in West Palm Beach. And in addition, I had no guarantee of any kind that I would be able to make the $500 per week payments. And actually, I didn't have any income at that point. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was really scary. So in in October of 1974, I did not have an arrangement to work for any other territory. Uh, I didn't even have an arrangement to work shots for any other territory. Mm-hmm. I'd spent the last four years working in Florida, and I'd built very little reputation in Tennessee. I was well-known in Florida. I could go to Florida and make money, but, hell, nobody really knew who I was in Tennessee much. I was taking over a city that was barely breaking even at that point, especially since it was the worst time of the year for wrestling in the fall, and Knoxville was drawing its worst crowds of the year. Uh, John Kazana. He could afford for his business to be down that time of year because he didn't have to pay an additional $500 every show to purchase the city. He also had made some profit during the year up to that fall, which I hadn't made at that point. And he also had money in the bank, I'm sure. So to really cap things off, I had not asked all the questions I should have during my due diligence with John Kazana before I purchased it. Uh, the first night I ran Knoxville, which didn't draw but about a thousand fans, I found out for the first time that John had been paying 10% of the gross house talent booking fee to my grandfather Roy and Nick Goulas in Nashville. Wow. <laughs> like, Wait, 10% of this money is going to them? So lo and behold, the first night's experience as an owner of a wrestling company, I lost more than a thousand dollars. And that didn't include the 500 the payment for the week. It was a sobering experience for a 26-year-old guy had two kids and a family to feed. So I'm behind the eight ball at this point in my life. That's the way I looked at it. In late 1974, I managed to free my new company of that ridiculous booking fee from the Nashville office. I made an agreement with Jerry Jarrett, the booker in Memphis, to work Memphis every Monday night, he was going to guarantee me $1,000 every Monday night. I started finding my own talent, and I started building my own company. In 1975, I still struggled mightily to make my ends meet, though. I used most of my $1,000 a week that I got out of Memphis to pay my losses in Southeastern and the 500 per week payments to Kazana. So I basically, in 1975, just broke even in wrestling. 1976, especially the summer of 76, I started to make a profit. At that point, I'd been down so long, I was hesitant to believe that I'd turned the corner, that the extended prosperity wasn't definitely in my my sight. Because I was like, wow, I'm finally making a little something, but, but what am I going to keep doing it? So I started my answer this way. So everybody can see what I experienced as a young businessman. 
from the fall of 1974 to the fall of 1976. So let's answer Mr. Herring's first question. Did you decide to pay off Mr. Kazana earlier than the agreement called for after the territory started growing and making more money? My answer to the first question is definitely no. (laughs) I did not decide to pay off my debt to John Kazana, you know. uh, So let's answer the next question, Ed. If so or if not, what was your reasoning for your decision? You know, I've thought about this some. So there was a lot of thought put into this process, and and, uh, there's a lot of questions to answer here. So the first that comes to mind is uh, me being a young businessman and having struggled to build a company, you just don't automatically assume your recent success is guaranteed. You never know. Uh, With wisdom comes caution, by golly. (laughs) As you get smart, you go, wait a minute, I'm doing good now, but what's going to guarantee me that I'm going to continue that? So to me, there was only one good thing. The only good thing about this agreement with John Cassana that benefited me was the fact that I didn't have to pay him any interest on the money. That fact played heavily upon how fast I needed to pay him off. In my mind, I'm not having to pay interest in here. So I'm beginning to make a little money and starting to come out from being in the hole. So Southeastern's business and income had grown dramatically in the summer of 76, but I decided there were better uses for my money than paying off debt with no interest on it, especially since now the 500 per week payments didn't seem nearly as big as they did in 1975 when the crowds were half the size right, they were now. Right, yeah. So there was a couple of other reasons I decided not to pay Kazan off. I'd experienced tremendous growth in my company very fast. I wanted to not only assure we didn't go backwards, but that we were definitely going to grow larger in the future. I decided I needed, rather than to pay off debt, I needed to invest in my company. So the NWA World Title Night's in front of me, and I was intrigued by it. I knew that we're going to do well, but I had no idea of exactly how well that we're going to do, how many fans are going to show up at the Coliseum that night. I needed to ensure myself that that event wasn't going to be my company's finest hour, but merely a stepping stone to even greater success. I needed something else to take that title night beyond what it was, a world championship title night. I needed to do something after that night that was as big or bigger than that event. I followed it with what I had seen my dad do so many times with such great success. I followed in his footsteps. I went down and I bought a brand new, beautiful four-door pink Cadillac for a tournament (laughs) that would last months (laughs) and end with something even bigger than the Funk versus Fuller match. That's what I was calling this world championship. I bought me a Cadillac, but I didn't buy it for me to drive around. I bought it as an investment for my company. I'm going to put this Cadillac up in a tournament. We're going to have months of good houses. And when we get to the finals of this Cadillac tournament, It's going to be a bigger event than Funk and Fuller for the world championship. So, Mr. Herring, the the last reason I decided not to pay Kazan off early was because I felt at this point that I'd kind of discovered the formula for wrestling success as an owner. I needed cash for my next step. I'd done a lot of good things. I'd made some good decisions in 1976. Mm. I thought I could really build my income and my reputation by doing the same things I had done in Southeastern 
now in a totally different part of the country. And in order for that to happen, I'm looking to expand. I need cash. I'm going to have to buy somebody out probably because you couldn't just go places. Everybody was wrestling all over the country. You couldn't just walk in and take somebody's company. You had to pay for it. So in order to enable me to duplicate my success at Southeastern Wrestling, I had to go somewhere else. Wow. How much did you give for that Cadillac? You said you wanted to invest in your company. What kind of money? And what we're talking about, 1976? How much did you pay for that Cadillac? 1976. People that own the Cadillac and that buy them today, they're going to roll over, man. They're going to fall on their face. Mm -hmm. I paid $6,000 for a brand new, beautiful Cadillac. How difficult was them to get it in pink as you ordered it? And did they think you were crazy? I'll tell you what, man. This is a story, and I'll probably get to this another time. But uh, I went. There was one big Cadillac dealership in Knoxville. And I went into there. It had six Cadillacs on the showroom floor. And that pink Cadillac was one of the six. I bought it right off the showroom floor. Uh, That is awesome. Wow. All right, Ron, another great one today. Listen, folks, Ron has three sites now on Facebook. One is totally full, but you can still become friends with the stud by simply liking his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud Facebook page. You can become friends the same way by liking his new author page at author Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. Follow Ron at Ron Fuller Welch there also. Super Studcast number 32, another record breaker with Jerry the King Lawler. Part two is now also available. And I bet you got something to say on that one because, listen, I know you had a blast hanging out and talking with the king. Yeah, yeah. I love part one, but I also love part two, Dave, uh, that you work with me on. And, wow, I really, really like that as well. I think for fans that are Jerry Lawler fans are going to love it because he's involved in part two, even though he's actually on the part two. And we're still in Memphis. And uh, we we talk history. I mean, really unbelievable wrestling history that I think fans consider me somewhat a historian. Uh, this part two of uh, Super Studcast number 32 uh, may be the best historical piece I have done. People listen to this. I think they're going to be amazed, especially one person in particular at the history of Sputnik Monroe in that city. That was a lot of fun talking about what Sputnik meant to the city of Memphis and and then spending time with the king, not just the king of wrestling, the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. So some interesting stories about Elvis on part two as well. Hey, Ron, we got to mention your new novel. It's called Brutus. It is on fire across the country and around the world and being compared to Jaws. Remember the movie Jaws? Of course you do. Your tremendous lion story can be found on Amazon.com, Brutus, or Ron Fuller Welch. You can find find it either way on Amazon by putting those two in, either Brutus or Ron Fuller Welch on Amazon. The only place you can get an autographed copy is on Ron's website at tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com and click Stud Store. You'll find it right there. All right. Do you want to give everybody those YouTube links once again that show the block busting angle before we finish up today? Yeah. Yeah. I said I would, uh, you know, uh, basically you go to YouTube, you just uh, search there. Uh, you go Mongolian stomper special 1980 
And uh, all I can tell you is be prepared for some, something pretty uh, shocking once they get to that blockbuster part of it. Yep, and uh, thank you very much, fans. I hope you all enjoy that. Uh, I'm very happy that we do have something saved historically that fans can see some of the things that we were doing in 1976, 77, 78, 79. We were breaking not just blocks. We were breaking all kinds of uh, records and all kinds of doing things that were crazy. Oh, no doubt. You you will not see that on any local TV anywhere back then or today or even on WWE or any other wrestling venue, period. All right, so where are we riding to next week? Well, we're going to put on a different hat in the, today's training next week. We're going we finished this three-part episode, basically, and we're going to get another unique training experience in the great sport of professional wrestling. Uh, next week, we're also going to be focusing on Friday night, September 10th, 1976. This is a big card. Uh, I will be facing Terry Funk's brother, the former world heavyweight champion, Dory Funk Jr. in Knoxville. Terry's pulling out all the stops at this point. He's sending Dory to come and beat me. All I got to do is get lose, and I'm done. I'm finished. So uh, he sends his brother for me this next episode. And we're only about a month away from the Southeastern Funk versus Fuller Showdown for the NW World title. So uh, next week's Learning Tree uh, answers the question, have I ever had a wrestler who refused to lose a match? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I want to thank everybody, obviously, out there for joining us today and making us one of the fastest growing podcasts in the world. It's amazing. Uh, what's happening and i really appreciate all the interest and everybody listening out there and take care of yourselves and and others around you and may god bless us all again ron another great one today this is david summers thanking you for riding with us again today and reminding you that ron fuller studcast is a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast the true story continues next week so full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.